Hi, if I could take a moment of your time before we start. If you've enjoyed previous episodes or if you enjoy this episode, if you could subscribe on the platform that you listen to, that would be really helpful. It helps us get more guests and push the podcast forward. Thanks. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Wow! Nice! Yeah! What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and t-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hi, listeners. I hope you've been enjoying the podcast. I am Sam Moores. You can now find the podcasts over on YouTube as well in video format. And if you've been enjoying them, it would be super helpful for me if you could leave a review, like, subscribe, all of those things on whatever platform you are using. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. And with me today, I have Abby Eaton. Hi, Abby. Hi, how are you? Not bad, not bad. Can you tell our listeners sort of who you are and what you do? So my name's Abby Eaton. I'm a British racing driver and probably most known for being the driver on the Grand Tour with uh, Jeremy Clarkson and the boys. Yeah, yeah. How, like, take me back. How did you get into becoming a professional racing driver, coach, person, all things? So it's probably a very similar story to most kind of drivers in, in the industry is that it was all kind of down to the family. So my dad has always raced cars, bikes, anything since he was a young kid. So when I was born, I kind of was, well, in fact, I was at a track in my mum's tummy. Um, <laughs> I think I actually first went to a circuit when I was two months old in a little push chair. So I kind of grew up around motorsport. I grew up around, you know, race tracks and Obviously watched my dad um, race himself and kind of idolised him. And I started when I was 10 years old in a go-kart. And then kind of from there, well, this will be my 18th year now in, in racing. So it's gone quite, gone quite quickly. <laughs> so you're little, you're doing a bit of karting. Mm-hmm. And is that, were you sort of taking it pretty seriously or just for fun? So originally when I first kind of started in go-karts, I just viewed it as like a hobby, you know, just a bit of fun with my dad on weekends off, you know, going and hanging out with him. And I never really thought massively about making it a career. And I I had kind of little thoughts towards it, but it was only when I got in a car for the first time on a track that I was like, wow, like this is what I want to do. 
um, I think the first thought when I jumped in a car was just that you can you can actually feel the car moving around and <laughs> you know sliding and moving underneath you, whereas a car tends to be if you're doing it right, you know, pretty planted. Um, what was the first first car you drove on track? It was a Citroen Saxo VTR. Um, so it was the championship was called Sax Max, mm. and my first go on a proper track was at Donington Park. And yeah. I remember I had Stefan Hodgett sat next to me, and yeah. It was it was wicked. I loved it. Loved it. <laughs> My first actual go, I think, in a car, kind of driving it in anger, was at Blyton Park, yeah. and that was very first kind of set up. So I remember going around there with my dad in the passenger seat, and he was a little bit nervous. I was only two seconds <laughs> off his time, so I was quite pleased with that. Yeah, that sounds was, pretty good. I, I was I was pretty impressed with myself. Did you find it difficult transitioning from a go kart to a road kart? I don't know this. Or a race car? Um, the main thing was kind of, obviously, carts, rear-wheel drive, and the Saxo was front-wheel drive. Mm. And because I'm kind of not from a family where we can go testing lots, just down to kind of lack of budget, it was kind of jump in and get on with it. And I remember before I did it, my dad was saying, look, like in a front-wheel drive car, if you have a slide, you have <laughs> to make sure you put your foot down on the accelerator. And I'm like, all right, yeah, cool. So I had that in my mind. And it was actually my first race was at um, Donington Park in the Saxo. And going through Old Hairpin, one of the guys in front had run off and brought a load of mud onto the track. And I remember I went over it and the rear of the car stepped out. So my natural response is rear-wheel drive. So I like turned into it and I went to lift off. And then I was like, oh no, I've got to floor it. And then floored it. And it basically just fired me off. <laughs> the wall the and I was like, I was absolutely gutted. Like, I knew straight away what had happened, but I was just so gutted because my dad had spent all winter building this car and yeah. I just crashed it in my first race. Oh, and very then, It didn't take too, too much to kind of fix it, but I didn't crash again for that reason. You know, I think I got through the full season without having a shunt. So I just got it out of the way nice and early. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But I, I learned fast, put it that way. Yeah, that's, I. I've I've done exactly that. I think yeah. many people that have driven a lot of rear wheel drive and then driven something fast front wheel drive has had a, a, a sort of random firing off yeah. the wrong way. Yeah. It's mainly when with the front wheel drive, it's getting the lock off again. Yeah. You kind of catch it and you're like, yeah, oh, this feels quite heroic. And then it, it properly bites either way. So it's just, <laughs> you've really got to keep in touch with where the steering wheel's at as to how much lock you've actually got in the car. So then you sort of progressed up through some a variety of faster faster cars. Mm. So from the Saxo, I went into, it was a, a Corsa BXR. So that was production touring cars back in the day. And that was kind of my first year of senior racing, if you like. And um, it went well. We ended up winning the Class B Championship. But I, I felt I kind of didn't really learn a lot. Mm. <laughs> I told you the dog would start kicking off. <laughs> so... I kind of, I ended up winning like 15 out of 18 races and it was nice. just, I ended up almost kind of like driving around almost like a bit of a track day, but it was good to obviously get that first championship win under my belt, but I wanted to really get stuck in and, and learn some more. So from there, we ended up going into MX-5s and we had, I've kind of not done a full year all the way through. It's kind of been bits and bobs mm. <laughs> where I can, I can have to let the dog out. I'm sorry about this. <laughs> If listeners know me, they know the dog and they know that she's a pin in the backside. <laughs> yes, yeah, so I went into MX-5s and my, my dad built the car as well and kind of it was done as and when we could. So I think I ended up doing from 2011 to 2013, I kind of did mm. 
maybe two or three races a year. And then we were like, right, let's get stuck in. Let's try and do a full season, you know, campaign, which we did in 2014, MX5 Super Cup. And it was so much fun, you know, really, really competitive. We really had to dig deep and work hard. And, you know, doing that with a family run team as well was something quite special. And then we ended up winning the championship again. So it was just awesome. Yeah, it was a wicked, wicked year. Is a I've done a little bit of MX5 racing mm-hmm. in, a, in a Mark One in the UK oh. series a little bit, and I I couldn't believe how fast well like competitive it is. Yeah, it's, it's like so forty close, cars or whatever, it? and everyone's on it. Yeah, and that's why you end up with paint being traded a lot because you're yeah. fighting for like tenths, sometimes even like half a tenth, and you know you've kind of got to make a, a bit of a clever lunge on someone, and you've got to hope that they know that you're going to do that and stuff like that. So. Actually, I did a one-off race in the Mark 1s at Croft in uh, 2010, I think. It was the year after the production mm. tone car. And that's when I was like, this is cool. And we did the Mark 3, which was the newer car, mm. um, because of that that one race. So, yeah, it is wicked fun. Yeah, and they're so cheap to run in comparison to you know other cars for the same kind of lap yeah. times that you get out of them. Yeah, that's it. And it's it's just having a good battle is, is more fun than being in just something faster. Yeah, personally, yeah. anyway, yeah, hundred percent. And then, so you did a bit of the Mazdas, and then and, where did you go from there? Where did I go from there? So from Mazdas, I did. I jumped into GT Cup. So that was two thousand and fifteen. Yeah, year after. So I uh, raced with Jeff Steele Racing um, in the BMW M3 E46 GTR. Uh, mindful so that was again another weapon quite a big kind of heavy car but it was you know the 500 brick big v8 in it and sequential box and all that kind of stuff so for me that was a big step up in kind of different techniques on how to drive and it was endurance racing and it wasn't massively long races i think they were ending up being about an hour um or something like that but you'd share it with with the second driver and um yeah, really, really enjoyed that. And again, we ended up only doing kind of a handful of races with it. But I think we ended up finishing second overall or something like that. So again, it was, you know, a really successful year. And it was just mainly what my thoughts behind doing what I was doing was just trying to kind of gain experience in stuff that mm. could potentially, you know, get me towards GT racing. Because, yeah. you know, ultimately, if you put your, your sensible hat on, the easiest way to make a career in motorsport is through the GT endurance side of things. But really, kind of the fire in my belly is like, you know, touring car races. And because that's what I grew up watching my dad do mm. in, in Eurocar is, you know, the cut and thrust and like half an hour races and stuff like that. But yeah, I just thought, right, this is what I want to do. So I'm going to try and kind of get the foundations in place to, to do GT stuff. So with that, the 2015 season rolled into British GT in 2016. I was in the, the Maserati Gran Turismo and. Yeah, that was my first year of kind of proper endurance racing, if you like. Mm. It was an interesting how, year. How did you find the transition from shorter races to longer races? Um, you just get a lot more red in the face and a bit more sweaty. <laughs> <laughs> the actual, I guess it comes down to more of like a, a full team effort because you, know, you might be fighting for like tenths on track, but actually when it comes down to the pit stop and the driver change, that could win or lose a lot. And my, my year, we were kind of with a team that were learning. It was their first year and something like that. And I worked out that every single pit stop we did was between seven seconds and two minutes too long. Um, oh, so we finished yeah. fourth a lot in the races. So, you know, it, it is what it is. And, you know, there are lessons that have been learned there. But 
yeah, the whole strategy side of things. So I've been one of the races is the Silverstone 500. So it's about, I think it works out about three hours long, something like that. And I remember it was chucking it down at one point and then it was super dry. And it was like, when do we put wets on? When do we go to slicks? You know, how many pit stops do we do? And there was a lot of stuff strategy wise that went in behind the scenes. And mm. um, I guess that's the side of thing that you've got to get used to is if I mess up, like it messes stuff up for everyone else and my teammate. Whereas I, if you know, in single seat, uh, sorry, in um, single format racing, if I mess up, it's ju- it just ruins it for myself. Yeah. But there's a bit more responsibility with with endurance stuff. Um, do you think? Do you find sort of psychologically you have to? I don't know. Do you, do you think about things a bit more because of that? Because you know that you've got to hand the car back to other people, or you yeah. just sort of attack yeah. it in a similar way. I mean, you've still got to, you know crack on and, and be quick but there might be a certain move that you're like uh, I think it'll come off but like I'm handing over to my teammate in like 10 laps and I don't really want to give him a car that might be a bit battered or you know if I do this and it doesn't come off I've ruined it so you have to be a little bit more kind of um, certain with the moves you're making and also think that there might be another driver there that's potentially paying for your racing so you're there to be fast and you're there to bring the car home. Yeah. When you moved up from slightly slower cars, like the Mazda to GT type cars, what did you have to sort of change driving wise? How do you, what's the difference in driving those cars in terms of, um, you know, what do you have to do? Technique or just, they're just faster? I think definitely with the MX-5s, it's all about your minimum speed everywhere because they're not the fastest things in the world. You've just got to maximize the speed wherever you are. Whereas there are some GT cars that you kind of do to the same degree, but it might be that they're a bit heavy, but they've got a really grunty engine. So you really want to maximize getting the straight line as early as possible at the corner. So you can use the engine engine grunt to get you around the, around the lap. I think mainly it was probably just kind of, you know, getting used to it. It's really strange, actually. I think I remember the first time I was, Alton Park is my favorite circuit. And mm, I had great success there all the time. And then obviously went there with, the, the Maserati and I cannot tell you how different the track is when you go from something slow driving on the track <laughs> to something fast like I'm like the, the corners all seem different they're all so close you know and you've got to be like on the exit of like turn one you're already thinking about like turn two but you soon acclimatize and get used to that feeling but yeah I remember my first practice session at Alton I came in I was like dad the track seems so different <laughs> yeah yeah it is going around tracks at different speeds so somewhere have you driven around somewhere like Cadwell in something really fast? Not anything really fast, no. Um, I think, yeah, MX-5s mainly. Lotus Cortina, which felt fast, like. Yeah. Rickety. For those that don't know it, Cadwell Park is like the sort of, I'd sort of say it's like the Nürburgring of the UK or something. It's just this yeah. tiny little strip of tarmac that goes winding around some hills and stuff. It's mental. It's a, it's a bike track, so... The, well two mx5s for example you can only just get two side by side and certain parts of the circuit and mm. like it makes for fun racing but yeah i mean if it was wider like it is at alton park you imagine like gt cars going around there yeah it'd be so so cool be mad, be mad. Yeah. taking off <laughs> yeah yeah so you raced some gt stuff and then did you race a bit more and then when did grand tour sort of come along so i did finish british gt 2016 and then basically ended up having a year out from kind mm. of well in fact 2016 was my last full year of racing i got asked to do a one-off drive in blanc pan endurance series at monzo in 2017 so i got the opportunity and it was kind of a bit of a shootout they want that the guy with the car wanted a girl to drive with him yeah. and there was me and two of the girls 
my first ever time in a GT3 car, my first ever time at Monza, and I'm like, oh my god, like, I've got so much to get my head around here. Like this is blowing my mind. Ended up being the fastest, so got the drive, and then yeah, my first ever race was with 52 other cars on the grid at Monza. <laughs> like, nice. my goodness, but we did all right. We, we ended up winning the um, the cup that we were in. So again, that was was positive, and then kind of from there, I've not really, I've kind of just done odds and sods really of races yeah. and it was I think it was just after 2018 um that I got the call about the Grand Tour so it was basically I got sent an email and it said you know can you come down to the track just meet the yeah. team you know we might want to do some filming with you you know just to see how you get on and I was had like, you applied or anything like that no literally just out of the blue completely out of the blue <laughs> nice. and I to start off with I'm thinking like which one of my friends is it that's winding me up and then <laughs> Like all of them were like, it's not like genuinely we haven't said anything. So I ended up going down to the track in Swindon and there was kind of five or six cars lined up. And one of the guys that works there, I knew anyway. So we're just having a bit of catch up. And he was like, right, you've got to drive around the lap in these cars. So crack on basically. I was like, all right. They wouldn't tell me what it was for, but I'm like, is this for what I think it is? And they're like, well, you know, if we want you on it next year and we need to have a race, then we want to know that you're quick enough. And I was like, (laughs) I get you. So at that point, obviously I didn't have any racing and, you know, I just was probably a little bit pent up with like frustration. I just wanted to to do something. So I absolutely thrashed these cars and ended up being pretty quick in them all. And basically there was a lap time that was set in each of the cars and I had to get as close to it as possible. Um, and I ended up smashing all the times it was set. And nice. uh, I said to my mum, I was like, I'm either going to end up in a tree or I'm going to be fast. <laughs> so that happened. And then I got asked back for like half a day. So originally the first time that I was down was like an hour, two hours driving. Mm. I had to do a little bit of chat on camera, kind of nothing scripted. It was just me being me and if I was okay with a camera in my face and stuff like that. And I went down for half a day and had a Porsche 911. Um, I think they might have had a GC3 there. Something else, and again, it was kind of a bit more of a step up in in cars. So mm. they just kind of wanted to know that they could throw like an eight hundred horsepower vehicle at me, and I'd yeah. be like, "Yeah, that's all right, you know, we'll crack on." And again, did all right. And then Andy Bowman, who's the exec producer, kind of invited me down to the studios in London, and just basically said, "Look, like we've sacked the American. No one knows this yet, but we've sacked the American, <laughs> and we want you to be our driver. Like, how do you feel about it?" And I was like. I mean, yeah, <laughs> why not? <laughs> Got nothing else to do. No, I was like, of course I want to be. You know, that's a fantastic opportunity. And then, yeah, that's kind of how it all started. How cool. uh, how do, that is awesome. It's mm-hmm. awesome. How does how do those episodes work? Like from from your side of it, do they? How does the filming schedule work? Do you film it all in one day? What how, like talk to me through um, a grand tour shoot? So it, it varies on what episode it is so when they do their kind of overseas challenges they'll go abroad for maybe a week sometimes two weeks to to do one episode and for example when we did that Azerbaijan and um Georgia one so I flat and I was out there for I think it was just over a week or something and they basically they they have kind of a loose thing on what they want to do but it is like none of it's scripted it's all mm. them and like you know it cracks me up that a lot of people say, oh, it's just, it's this and it's that. Like the the transcript of 
vocab and dialogue that they have after to go through is huge because they just <laughs> I don't know if you've met the boys or not but they, you right. know they just bounce off each other and it's all you know authentic and stuff so that's probably another reason why it takes so long to, to do it but when it's an episode where it's literally me just doing the laps I basically will maybe drive two cars in a day maybe four cars depending on what they can get at the time and my schedule mm. so the first season I did all the cars for that season in about three days yeah. because I was going abroad somewhere for a few months but generally how it happens is <clears throat> when we do the, the laps I've got to get the same lap time maybe two or three times for it to be legit so if I pull yeah. this one lap wonder out the bag and then I can't match it again then it's the next best kind yeah. of thing so we'll do a lap, set a lap down, and then jump out of that, jump into the car, do a lap, set a lap again, and it's kind of usually in and out of the cars. So that's something that sometimes takes a little bit of getting used to is you know, they'll, they'll do a lap and they'll shoot it at maybe corners one, two, and three. Yeah. And then they'll be like, right, we want you, do we want to shoot the other car now? Rather than keep moving positions all the time, so then I'll yeah. jump into the car and shoot that. But yeah, the, the lap that you actually see is, is pretty, pretty cool how it's put together, and it's, yeah. It all is what it is. Um, That's pretty cool. Yeah. And are they like you've got you with that? You've got a mix of we need you to set a lap time, and then probably a mix of we want this to look quite sideways. Um, you probably see on all the the kind of promos and stuff that there is a little bit of artistic flair with some of the the car reviews that they do, and yeah, they get pretty sideways. But you know, it's, it's kind of down to me, really. Um, yeah. Obviously, if you're just pootling rounds, then it's not going to look fast anyway. But generally I'm on a quality lap every lap I do and it is kind of you know as fast as I can go around so it looks yeah. fast anyway but if there's a bit of artistic license where I can kick up some dust somewhere then I'll do that as well <laughs> which there is most of the time. Did you find did you find it difficult just jumping into lots of different types of cars and just going wham straight fast straight away or not not too bad? Um it wasn't too bad because because I instruct as well. Um, okay. I'm kind of used to jumping in and out of different cars and yeah. kind of my whole driving career, I've always, like I've never really tested that much. So I've always been in and out of cars, straight into quality and stuff like that. So I've always had to smash the lap time straight away. But it's just when you, when you have to jump from cars that are so completely different. So for example, on one of the days I was filming with the XJ220 but the other car I was filming with was a VW Up. <laughs> so, I was like, okay, right, I'll get my head into this. So there is a couple, two or three laps of like acclimatization when yeah. you do something like that. But I think probably the, the weirdest one or the weirdest kind of feature to jump in and out of is a car that's got rear steer on it. Okay. Because you jump into something that hasn't. And so basically when you drive a car that hasn't you may be going to a corner and it'll maybe just start to understeer you've gone a bit bit too hot so then you respond to that understeer by either trying to get more weight on the front or backing off or something like that whereas in a car that's got rear steer you'll go in and you maybe get that understeer and then it will like do something to try and sort it out and you're like so you end up almost fighting with the car um and you've got to get used to how it it behaves weirdly. What what no like what specific car have you felt that in? The AMG GTR. Yeah. And there was another one. I think the Lambert Hurricane Performance has got it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But m- the most noticeable was the GTR. Like it's so sensitive to it. That's so weird. That's so weird that it like 
it happens off like like you say you turn in and yeah. then yeah, I'd always expect, you know, I've driven some of the new Porsches and stuff mm, that have it and it's just, mm, you know, it just works, whatever. Mm, you don't, don't know. I think, it. I don't know whether it's just because if you're driving it so hard that it kind of, it's not, it doesn't kind of go in and you're like, yeah. oh, oh, and then it does something. It's kind of, you go in and because you're really kind of sensitive to it, you'll feel it do something straight away yeah. and then it will do something different when you're already thinking, right, I want to do this to it. But then, like, I didn't notice it really when I was driving it. It was only when I jumped into something that didn't have it and then jumped straight back into it. I was like, oh, yeah. my God, this feels really unsettled. But then, yeah, a couple of laps into it, then you, you get used to it again. Do you have any standout cars from that period of time of driving? Um, or funny stuff that happened? So I think probably my favourite cars that I drove on it. So I really like the Lambo, the Hurricane Pethmante, mm. just because I think I was... I think it was my first car that I drove on it, but it's just it's wicked. It's it's so loud. It's it was obnoxiously orange, like, and it's just so much fun to drive, and it was bloody quick as well. So I like that. I really enjoyed the Ford GT as well. Mm. Um, I think the handling on that was amazing. I just kind of wish it was a V8, just so it sounded a little bit more meaty. But again, yeah. the V6, you know, it was it was bloody quick as well. Um, and I really enjoyed the Ford Escort. The cozy, mm. like it was just <laughs> so much fun because you just it's just so sideways, so easy, and you can like back it into the corner and it's like turning for you. And then obviously, with a little bit of turbo lag as well, it's just yeah. a lot of character to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have like a favorite sort of era of cars? Do you know what? I'm rubbish with like historic stuff to be honest. Well, I mean, it could be 2020. Mm, I'm just rubbish in cars in general, Sam. You work this out. <laughs> I race them, but I'm rubbish with them, you know. Well, this is I, just, I do quite like modern cars. I do quite like modern cars. I like the old Beamers. My dad's actually got, he um, imported a Holden Commodore from the oh, cool. So we've got that at home, which is, it's got the Peter Brock livery on it from Bathurst. Yeah. So that's cool to drive. But I think probably, yeah, the, the old school Beamers, so like the E30s and stuff like that. And um, yeah, the Lotus Cortinas look pretty cool as well. But I think probably the, as new as possible, when it comes to cars and in a race car form <laughs> that might help yeah but i'd have the nice ones on the road if someone wanted to give me them <laughs> yeah 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 no it was going to be one of my questions of like i've come across a lot of racing drivers that i've met mm-hmm. don't really like d- do road cars like they just don't really like think about them that much mm. like my little nephew we went to car i took him to um car fest and he was like oh my god look at that it's this 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 and i was like <laughs> all right and he was like what's that so, uh, I don't know. You probably <laughs> know more than me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I don't know. I think maybe it is quite common that we're just all a little bit rubbish when it comes to cars. I think it's, it's fair enough. The more time I spend on track, the less interesting road cars, I think, become to me. Yeah. I, I like them. I think they're cool. But you just sort of go, well, I can't drive it that fast. And yeah. if it was on a track, I'd rather be in a race car, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. You know, yeah. that sort of. I think That's you always look at like, you know, the engine performance you get out of it and like boringly the comfort you have in them. Yeah. <laughs> Which yeah, yeah. Most of the nice ones are not like, oh, like comfortable. Like the Lamborghini seats, oh my goodness. They were so, like, they're just basically solid carbon fiber. Yeah. And like, obviously, it's quite low. You plunk your bum into it. And I was like, oh, God, get me a cushion. Get me a cushion out of the lounge. They <laughs> are awful. Yeah. Those, those Lambo seats are another level yeah. of just not not fun i couldn't do like a rally in it yeah yeah so along this way do you have you picked up and worked with various sponsors like how 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 do these drives 
come about? How do you get a drive in, I don't know, a GT3 car, ideally without paying um, or getting paid? It's probably word of mouth more than anything, I think. So mm-hmm. obviously with being involved in the Grand Tour, that's kind of lifted my profile quite a lot and yeah. you know put me probably on the radar of people that perhaps I wasn't on before. But last year, I did quite a lot of European rallycross for the first time, which oh, is, honestly, fun. it's the most fun I've ever, ever had in a race car. It's like if I could go back to the start and only do rallycross, I would. Um, <laughs> like, so that was basically the guy who set up the championship and he wanted just, he had a couple of, of spots left on the grid yeah. and he just wanted to obviously get some publicity and just because he, he knows obviously how fun these cars are and probably yeah. us track races we were always going to be like oh my god this is wicked so he got in touch and just basically said you know do I want to come down and have a go and have a, a race in it so obviously bit his hand off and said yes and then kind of did a few few races of that similarly end of last year I did the Jaguar IPC trophy um yeah in Saudi in November and that was again I think probably just on the on the back of the kind of profile that I've got and they they ran me in the guest car the VIP car yeah. So yeah, I had an opportunity in that. So I think, you know, I haven't really, I haven't secured a full season of racing, if you like, from off the back of the Grand Tour, which I, you know, when they asked me to do it, I was thinking, oh my God, like finally, you know, my prayers have been yeah. answered. But it's certainly given me a lot of opportunities with other stuff and opened a lot of doors for me. Yeah, that's cool. Well, you just listened to completely different sort of events. <laughs> the, the the Rallycross, like talk to me, what is so good about Rallycross? Why is it, why is it that great? and you know driving and stuff um it's just so exciting you know any anyone that does like drifting and stuff you feel like a hero when you do a, a drift <laughs> and like you, you you have to do it you, oh you don't have to but you're supposed to go sideways around across and also you can hit people off um which is all the things you're not really supposed to do in track driving and it's just the fans are really you know really super pumped up and it's almost like not grassroots because that kind of almost kind of lessons whatever appeal to it but it just felt like everyone was there because they wanted to be there and everyone loved the same sport and everyone was kind of talking to each other and it was like back in the day when you'd go karting and you'd all mingle with each other whereas I think probably track motorsport it can get a little bit snobby at times so like I obviously went into this championship as you know a random that had never done rallycross and everyone was so helpful and you know they they ended up kind of inviting me back and ended up doing four race weekends with them and nice you know the cars are super loud they're popping and banging you've got like launch control you've got a massive handbrake like what's not to love about it it just looks like the most fun yeah the most fun are there many series like rallycross series if, if a randomer wants to go and get involved, do you know if there's many that you um, can do? I think there's quite a lot of like grassroots stuff. So I think yeah. um, I think there's like a, a Swift, a Suzuki Swift rallycross championship because I'm That's sure fun. I tweeted about doing rallycross and they messaged me and was like, "Come and have a go." Um, yeah. So and I think it's fairly cost effective as well, which I know that Jeremy and James and Richard did a episode on rallycross. I think at Lynn yeah. Hill. So yeah, I think definitely, even if you just typed into Google, you know, British Rallycross Championships in the UK or something like that, um, yeah, yeah. it'll bring up some opportunities. But I think probably if you compare Rallycross to circuit racing in the UK, it's not quite as big because I think there's only yeah. a couple of Rallycross tracks in the UK, whereas obviously we've got quite a lot of, of race tracks. Yeah, it looks it looks like a lot of fun. Mm. Of, of, of those guys, Jeremy and everyone, who's the best driver? 
Um, it depends what you want to get get out of them. So okay. Jeremy's quite uh, Jeremy's kind of a, a bit of an all rounder. So he's quick on a lap and he can drift as well. James is surprisingly quick again. Like he, he probably isn't given that airtime as being <laughs> you know super quick. And Richard as well. They're, they're all decent drivers. If you compared them to kind of Joe Bloggs on the street, they're all quite quick. But obviously, poor Richard has kind of got a, a name for himself <laughs> as being a crasher. So yeah, don't know. If you want to go sideways, Jeremy. If you want to go to the shops and back safely, James. And if you want to <laughs> do some rallycross and crash into people, then Richard. Fair, fair, fair enough. Yeah. One of the things I, I want to sort of ask you about, have you found being a sort of a woman in motorsport, like good, bad, no different, same, same, like anything different about it versus what you think, the, how the guys get treated? I'm kind of quite thick skinned, so I probably there's probably stuff that goes on that I kinda like it just goes like that. I don't even yeah. register it. But probably when I was a kid in go karts, there was a lot of like the mechanics would be like, You're gonna let a girl beat you like, you know, and it would be kind of used as a, a negative that a girl would mm. be quicker. But I think that's just natural, you know, kind of society is kinda of like that and that's just kinda of how it is. And mm. it's not, you know, that if I was quick, the mechanics would be like, you know, fair play, she's a quick peddler, but are you going to, like, it would just to try and motivate their driver. Yeah. So I don't really take massive offence to that, but I think that you've got to have good results. So when I was first kind of coming through the car stuff, like I was kind of learning and obviously I didn't have championship wins and didn't have like the best results yet. And if you go to a new championship or a new team or whatever, they would always like push you harder or um you know give you a bit more of a tap a bit more of a hit to see if you're going to back out or not mm. and I ever since I was younger my dad's always like if anyone tries to like squeeze you off the track or intimidate you don't let them intimidate you because the first time you back out of something they'll know that they can do that yeah. so I, I've probably raced a lot harder and a lot more kind of assertive on track than the guys have to be because I've almost kind of got um, a place there a little bit yeah. but once I got the results and people kind of know me as being a decent driver and that I have to do that less. But if I come into a new championship, there is, it's always the first couple of races It's people kind of seeing what is she actually like, you know, what's going to happen. But the, the main industry where I've kind of felt that it's been different is with the instructing side of things. Right. So I'll work on, track days for example I work at Silverstone as an instructor there so I'll sometimes do their track days for them and they you can buy tuition slots so you, you go up and you say right I'll half an hour tuition shop, slot please so we basically there'll be four of us instructors on the day and we'll just get assigned xx and x and I had this one guy come upstairs and he was in a caterer and he wanted some instruction and as instructors of Silverstone we're not allowed to go in open top cars so we were like me and this other guy, Chaz Small, we were talking to him. And I was like, why do you put a camera on your car and then we can review the footage? And his body language was just as Chaz. And I was right. stood here and he was like, uh, anyway, and I was talking to Chaz. And like even Chaz was like, what's his problem? Anyway, he went away and we said, look, like if you want instruction, we can actually give you one of the Silverstone Renault Megans and we can do the instruction in that if you want to know mm. lines and stuff. So he was like, all right, yeah, we'll do that. So put his name down. And like... Joe, who's the woman in the office, she saw all this happen and she was like, I'm giving him you and I want to see what he does. So he comes strolling upstairs 
he said, right, I'm ready for my tuition. And I was like, yep, you've got me. And he was like, what, do, do I not go with Chaz? Is it not Chaz? And I was like, no, I'm really sorry. You've actually got me. So he was like, okay. So we went down into the car, went out the pits. And by the second corner, he was basically shitting himself because you know he's wanting to break 20 meters before I, you know, I'm mm. still saying, come on, full power, keep going, keep going. And I will admit, I pushed him, pushed him, pushed him as hard as I could. <laughs> and he came in, he pulled up and he went, you are actually amazing. He's like, you are absolutely brilliant. And you could see his whole demeanor and his whole yeah. body language had changed. And, you know, he, it's just one of those things that people are having their heads. I'm probably the same that, you know, most female drivers, I'm like, and I probably don't rate them, not as in racing drivers, but, you know, drivers on the road. I generally yeah. say that, you know, male drivers are generally better. And it's not that, they're less competent, but it's just that they kind of get on with things more. Whereas I think some, some females can kind of worry about things and be a little bit more tentative. And that's, especially on a racetrack, if you're instructing a female, like technique wise, they are heads and shoulders better than um, the boys, but it's just that they lack the bravery to go faster. But yeah, that's really the only time I had, I did actually have one woman, it was at Palmer Sport, So I was instructing there. And it was a woman and her husband and the team leader gave the husband to me. And the woman ran over and was like, no, sorry, can you put her with, uh, put him with one of the, the boys? I want, her, <laughs> I want him to be pushed. Oh. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, wow, you've just, um, you know, sent women back, you know, however many oh. years. I was like, I said, do you do realise I've probably got more, in fact, I have got more championship wins and more success than all of these guys lined up here. No offense, boys. All of these guys. <laughs> and they were like, yeah, she has. And this woman was just like, oh, I didn't mean it, you know, completely retracted oh, what she dear. said. So again, this poor, poor man. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I was just like, go, come on. What are you breaking there for? But yeah, other than that, it is all, all very positive and, you know, people enjoy seeing me do well and, and people yeah. support me for doing that as well. So, does it, does it lead to more opportunities with some sponsors because they want to see women out there racing um, and stuff or not necessarily? I think probably the last year or two, there's maybe been a bit more of a push to see females involved a bit more. So for example, obviously W series, um, yes, I the, to talk the to you about female the only championship, obviously 
that is an opportunity for females. So there are things that are kind of being put in place to to give females a leg up. But you know, my my thoughts on it are that it should be a positive thing being a female in a male dominated sport because if I'm quick, if I'm as quick as P1 or the quickest guy, but I'm the only female, then there's going to be more attention on me. So it's more beneficial yeah. for the sponsors. But I still think there is a lot of, of the kind of stereotypes out there that you know, females aren't going to be quite as quick. Or mm. you know, if I sponsor this girl and then she's rubbish, I'm going to look like an idiot because, of course, I've sponsored a girl when I could have sponsored a guy. So there is that as well. But I think if you do it right and you know there is that push behind females in sport, then I think it's a definitely a positive thing to do. Yeah, so do you feel like you have to sort of you know, represent the entire time? Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I think that's probably quite normal. When the W Series was launched, you were a little bit critical at the beginning. Um, yeah. You, and, and then I was <laughs> looking at it. Me. <laughs> <laughs> Can you run me through your thoughts on it? And then I've also saw that you were meant to be doing it this year. Yeah. So... Um, Originally, when it also, was... Sorry, can you can we just explain what the W Series is to the listeners in case they haven't come across it? Yeah, so W Series is the world's first female-only single-seater championship. So it uses Formula 3 cars and um, 20 drivers on the grid, all female, and it's all fully funded as well. So you don't need to bring any budget whatsoever. Yeah, all the, the costs are covered, your accommodation, fitness, physio, all that kind of stuff. And at the end of it, if you win, then you win, there's basically £1.5 million, uh, million prize fund as well, which is split down the, the full grid. So even nice. if you finish last, you still get about like five grand or something. So, that's cool. you know, so a world first really for something like this, uh, never mind, you know, just for, for women to do. So it was launched uh, at the end of 2018 for the 2019 season to, to be the inaugural year. And basically when it was first launched, I just kind of, for me, the only thing that's held me back isn't my gender, it's the lack of money. Mm. And, you know, for me, I just thought it just doesn't feel right. You know, all this money that's been spent, let's say the season cost 20 million. You know, that 20 million pound, if you took a few million and gave it to like two females in rallycross that are just on the cusp but need that extra lift, two in touring cars again, two in single seaters. And so that every form of motorsport you had females at the top, then to me, that's a more positive thing to do and it's more authentic and it will get females into every single yeah. side of motorsport. And I just didn't like that they'd almost created almost like a bit of a circus act, like a bit of an arena for it. And there'd been obviously Formula Woman back in the day that was a massive flop and there'd been loads of other female only championships that have been done that just didn't work so Mm. naturally I was a little bit skeptical and I was just worried that you know in this climate that we're in and like obviously Bernie Eccleston's made a comment before I think saying like we should have female only motorsport and male only motorsport and I was like if this is a success I'm really really worried that that's what's going to happen it's going to be separated Mm. into you know male and female motorsport yeah so I kind of raised my concerns about it, um, but I still kind of stayed a bit open-minded just to see how the season would, would go together. And, you know, fair play to them. They didn't, you know, skimp on any money or any resources or support or anything like that. And it was super professional how it was run. Um, the girls generally were all, you know, brilliant 
drivers and you know created some amazing racing as well you know because ultimately it could be that every single race the girls would all crash into each other and again that would have just been awful as well so yeah I was pretty impressed with it all and originally I was due to race in Australia all of last year and um, so I was actually out in Australia at the time and I'd put loads of effort into kind of doing that so as well as kind of being a bit that I don't agree with it I couldn't I couldn't say yes to do it and then the Australian deal ended up falling through. So oh. I was sat on my backside watching all these girls race <laughs> all year. And I was like, it's going to cost me nothing. I haven't got any budget to race. So tick, tick for that. And you win money at the end of it. I was like, I'm being stupid here. You know, if it was, if it was an embarrassment and they weren't running it as professionally as they were, then I wouldn't have done it. But I completely changed my mind on it. And I can understand now that, the ways to make it sustainable and the ways to make W Series a long-term thing is by having that championship because it is an arena to showcase the girls, but also it's an arena for sponsors. So yeah. if you haven't got that or you kind of do two and run across, two and this, two and that, it's kind of lessened a bit. So yeah. you might do it for one or two years and then there's no funding there. So I can completely understand why they've done it in the way they have. Yeah, I think in terms of sort of eyeballs for sponsors, like you said, like if you build this series, you can market the series to everyone. Whereas yeah. if you just say this is this one person, exactly, like mm. it gets, it's all spread out and it, you sort of become just like a management agency. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's kind yeah. of like, like Racing Steps Foundation that was active back in the day. You know, that's the kind of in my head, that's kind of what I thought would be good. And it, in an ideal world, if you had an unlimited pot of money, then that's the way that you'd go, but yeah. there isn't. And, you know, they've got to make it a, a successful business really to keep being able to fund the girls to race. So yeah, end of the year, I applied to do it and then got through to the assessment phases and then got picked to be in the, the group of 20. So yeah. Cool. Oh, and then Corona hit. <laughs> yeah. The the assessment phase, is that a classic shootout type situation or? Um, so they originally it was you basically go to Almeria which is in Spain track in Spain and um you have basically three days kind of testing if you like like two sessions driving and it's you get marked obviously on your lap times how fast you are and how you interact with the engineers you know how professional you are kind of your whole whole thing and because there were already five Brits in it they didn't really want any more Brits in the championship so ideally they want more you know, from a wider range to, to come in the championship. So the first assessment I had to do was at Dunsfold, which is where all the cars are based, and it was a simulator assessment. Mm. So there was about 13 British drivers. We basically had simulated race weekends against each other. So we had Norris Ring and Assen, and we basically had to do a 40-minute practice, 30-minute quality, and then 30-minute race or something like that. And you actually raced each other. So I ended up winning... I won both races. Oh, I've almost forgot that. Won both races. Um, so then got asked to go through to the next phase, which is the testing in Armoria, where we were up against, like we had Spanish drivers, mm. um, Australian drivers, New Zealand drivers, you know, people from all over the place. That's cool. Do you do a lot of sim driving? Uh, not really, no. Um, <laughs> had but, you done a lot of sim driving no, before this? No, none. So I, yeah, I hadn't done any sim driving and when W Series said that there was going to be this sim stuff first, I was like, oh man, I'm rubbish on a sim. I was thinking I'm not going to get through. Like, 
so what I'm going to do? But actually, the W Series sims that they use are really, really realistic. So mm. kind of knuckle down and kind of like, look, you, you've got to do it, so crack on. And then, yeah, skipping forward to now, start of this year, I was like, right, I'm not going to, I can't afford to go testing in single seaters. Yeah. So I need to try and get some sort of driving in. So I ended up buying a sim um, at the start of the year. And then obviously with coronavirus and lockdown, I've, in fact, I haven't been on it as much as I should be because I've been doing a part-time job somewhere else. But yeah, yeah I'm getting into the sim stuff a little bit more as frustrating as it is. Yeah. What are you What are you racing on in? So the hardware, I've got a SimCube wheelbase and I've got Hugh Belled pedals. And that was all kind of put together by PRS simulators, racing sims. Yeah. So yeah, I just kind of said I wanted something that was not going to, completely bankrupt me but I want something that's good enough quality that it kind of feels all right so I've kind of done a few races on I've just started on iRacing Um, mainly I've been on R Factor for majority of it and then I've got Race Room as well but to be honest yeah I just haven't been on it all that much but I've done a couple of races in the the race all-stars trophy so that's kind of it looks like almost the kind of main biggest one at the moment so there's a couple in that got my ass handed to me but got better <laughs> with each race as I kind of learn more you know sim driving is yeah. different to driving in real life and then I've got a race this Saturday for the pro racing sim dude as well so cool how, yeah. does, how do they differ what do you say the biggest difference is between racing on a sim and real life driving um, on a sim in real life yeah just the technique you have to use to get the car to do what you want so there's certain parts of it that are really realistic and then there's others that like for example, on R Factor, on certain cars, you kind of you have to go down. Let's say Cops at Silverstone is quite a fast right-hander. Yeah. So you'd think that it might just be a quick dab on the brakes to fifth turn and back on the power again. Yeah. But it you have to kind of quick dab on the brakes down two gears to fourth just to get the nose to turn and then immediately back up to fifth again, or like oh. Paddock at Brands. You smash the gears down to third as quick as possible. Like, don't worry about blowing the engine up because can't do that. It's a game. Smash down to third, straight back up to fourth again, and then up to fifth. So you're really using the engine braking, not to slow the car down, but to get the car to turn. And then another car I've driven, which was on the All-Stars race at Silverstone, which was Tartus PM18 or something like that. Watching the quick sim guys, they're just cursed for so long so like into Brooklands, for example at the end of the straight you know naturally as, as a circuit driver you kind of try and turn in and kind of carry speed all the way up to your apex and and kind of then you squeeze power on whereas yeah. like these guys are kind of turn in so they break hard late turn in and then just don't do anything don't balance the throttle don't break don't add any throttle don't do anything until you're pretty much straight and then you add the power in Wow, and it feels odd to not do something. You know, for ages I'm like, okay, I'll wait, wait, wait. Yeah. And naturally, like, I want to. As soon as you do anything, you spin. But yeah, and I only knew that from watching the quick sim guys do it. And is that how you've got better at and learnt these things by watching other people? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I've I, that that thing about changing down loads. I saw this the other day. I was, I was playing on Gran Turismo Sport. And, yeah. I was, I was like, okay, let's see what the fastest lap is. And it was like 10 seconds faster. You're just like, I don't understand yeah. how it could be that much faster. <laughs> and then I saw what it was exactly that on yeah. one of these guys. He was changing down like 
so fast yeah. and so many gears and then literally going straight back up again. I was yeah. like, what the hell? Yeah. Like you'd be, you'd be in the wall if you did that in an actual car. <laughs> um, and I think that's probably with the pro drivers, it's almost a bit of a negative actually having the race experience on the track. Yeah. Like if you come into sim driving completely fresh, then you learn that, which one of my housemates, he um, instructs for GT Academy and he was saying a lot of the sim drivers when they were doing the kind of real world driving, mm. he had to stop them doing that kind of stuff. Okay. But that's all they all they knew on how to drive. Yeah, yeah. Does that GT Academy still exist? No, I don't think so. I think they've wound down a lot if they have. Yeah. There might only be certain regions that do it. But yeah, it was massive at one point and then I think it's kind of it's done its job now. So yeah, I think I think they've got to try and tie it in with the game release as well. And I don't think yeah, there's been yeah. a new game release for a while. So yeah. Yeah, true. And it must cost them a bomb to oh, do it. Yeah. I mean, it must be worth it. I mean, you look at Jan Marlborough, sure. like he's outstanding now. He's a you know, factory Nissan driver, but yeah, it's a lot of a headache for someone, I think. <laughs> Probably. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. I think that I look at that and go, it's just a really amazing, even if they don't turn out to be a phenomenal racing driver at the end of the day, chances are they're, they're probably pretty good because if you're the mm. number one or whatever at, at one of those games you've yeah. got commitment mm. but just the idea that people can sit in their room and be like oh no actually like if i get really good at this there is a possibility that i could get in a real race car mm. and drive it that's just cool isn't it yeah it's super cool i mean i couldn't sit in my room for hours and end that they do like <laughs> some of the kids like especially if you're at like an autosport show and you've got a sim stand set up these little yeah. kids will wander up like, yeah, I'm a travel girl. And then they'll just find like five seconds from somewhere. And you're like, what? And he's like, well, actually, I've done a million hours on this track, actually. So I'm like, <laughs> fair play. I couldn't fair sit fair. in my room all day. Yeah. When you're coaching people, and let's say those Silverson ones, so you have, do you have like 20 minutes with each person or half an hour with each person? How does it, does it break up like that? Yeah, so if I'm doing a one-to-one thing with someone, then I'll, they'll literally have all day with me. But certain tracks like track days and a bit smaller like that it's usually just a tuition slot so they can book an hour-long slot or a half half an hour slot it just depends what they want is it really difficult trying to coach someone over in like 20 minutes no no you pick stuff up pretty quickly um is there something that most people like if you just said you didn't even need to look and just be like okay i can pretty much there's a few things i know i used to ski instruct and there was there's pretty much something that like everybody does and you, yeah. even if you you don't know anything about them you're like i'm pretty sure i can call them out on this one vision is there any vision oh yeah i bet, I bet always that. number one vision so can you explain that to the listeners yeah so as humans we're kind of evolved to look as far ahead as we can like run in terms of speed so when you drive on the road you kind of learn to move your eyes up as far as uh, as quick as you drive on the road and obviously you set that to a track where you're doing three four times the speed your eyes are a little bit lazy, so you don't really want to look as far as you should. So, for example, at Silverstone, let's use Club, which is the right-hander onto the brand new, um, or to the new pits, so where the wing is and yeah. everything. So it's it's kind of an awkward corner because you've got to turn in really late. So you kind of got to go quite wide. But if you look just in front or through the windscreen, you don't realise actually the circuit goes over there. <laughs> you naturally only put a little bit of lock on so you might turn this much and then you're like oh actually oh no it's tightening up it's tightening up so you need to be like two or three steps ahead of where you're going to end up 
And obviously when you get quicker and quicker, that will happen quicker. And so you, you've just got to be super, super prepared. And like if I'm sat next to someone and I'm not even looking at their eyes and they'll do a movement, they'll turn the wheel and I'm, I'll go, look down the straight and immediately <laughs> go like that and the hands go like that. Because your eyes follow, uh, sorry, your hands follow where your eyes are looking. So like when you're driving down a motorway, if you look at an orange cone, you will hit that orange cone. And you're not thinking, I'm going to drive towards it, but your hands will just just drag you over. Which, like I've always been told, like if there's a crash, don't look at the crash. Look yeah. through it, and you'll get through it. <laughs> so that's the theory behind that. I 100% do that. And I know it's something that I'm not very good at, and I know it's something I'm trying to work on. Yeah. But like, same, same, with yourself, same with me. Same with me. Catch yourself, to, like, to do it. watching the gear changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, in, I'm currently trying to, on iRacing, I've been doing some laps around Monza in the F3. Yeah. And like coming on the exit of Ascari, because it's quite tight and obviously you're going quite quick and there's quite big sausage curves and he's trying to like not hit the sausage curves. So you look at them and like in my head, I was like, why are you, you've just shortened your vision by like 50 meters, like look down the straight. And as soon as I look down the straight, everything else relaxes because you're not looking at the, you're not like, oh, oh, oh there's a curve yeah. there. You're looking at the long straight. And so everything's a lot smoother. So I, you know, I have to tell myself to do it, hundred percent. It's so weird how something like that makes such a difference to how smooth mm. you can be. Yeah, like it's crazy. Mm. So you did the the Grand Tour stuff, mm-hmm. and then have you done some precision driving type things since then? Or I'm just trying to think. What was it? I've done a few like music videos and tv adverts and stuff like that music video. yeah like not me singing like driving on it what did you have to do in that it was super easy it was one for um mabel with her song don't call me up so we were based in london and basically there's one shot where she's sat on the back of this beamer like singing to the camera with all her friends in the back and we had to drive around this car park but it was quite narrow so they just got me in to do the driving while she was singing at the camera and then a with the advert, it was drifting around someone that was stood stationary looking at a camera, yeah. but that's not come out yet. So that'd be cool to see that. That's cool. And in that scenario, do they just go like, right, you've got one take, go. No, usually it's a million ticks and you're like, I wish it was just one take. <laughs> um, yeah. Usually it's like, yeah, cool. We'll do that. Or like they get the models to do something slightly different. And I mean, we probably ended up doing maybe like 12, 12 or 15 yeah. takes, actually not that many. But, Did you yeah. nail it every time? Uh, pretty much. There was there was like one or two where I just stopped maybe like half a metre wider than, or drifted yeah. half a metre wider than what I wanted to. But everyone else watching is like, yeah, brilliant. Whereas it's me and the stunt coordinator, like we're both drivers. And there's a yeah. like drifting around, I'm looking at him and he's looking at me and he he knows that I'm slightly <laughs> up. Like I stop and he'll look at me and I'll be like... <laughs> but like it's still perfect for the shot, yeah, but yeah. it's not what I want to do kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and he's like, mm, yeah. it could have been a foot that to the right. <laughs> the guys, some of the guys that whose car it was, they were kind of stood watching, and he was like, "It's like you are perfect every single time." And I was like, "Yeah, I was." <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, you're welcome. How do you go about getting more seat time? Because obviously, seat time is super important for getting good, getting quick, mm. and it's probably the 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 cost of seat time. It's probably what stops, I would say, most people getting good and quick. Yeah. Obviously, you do instructing. Do you think that's a really good way of keeping your skills up and 
improving and stuff like that yeah I think probably my driving and car control and stuff didn't really take off until I worked at Palmer Sport and I always sing Palmer Sport's praises for this that especially somewhere like Palmer Sport where you know you are pushing these guests to the absolute limit and they are spinning off and, and you know pushing themselves is you obviously we don't want them to spin so you learn from the passenger seat what they're going to do and what it's going to happen before it even happens. And you can almost like, I so many times go around some of the corners. I've like got the wheel. So I'm sideways and I've got the wheel, got opposite lock on, <laughs> saved it. And then I'm like, carry on again. So you, you learn a lot from the feeling, you know, going up through your bum and into your body on, on what's going to happen. And as a novice driver, they do things that you would never, ever do. Or you might do, you might be pushed into doing because of a situation and you learn stuff that, yeah, you would never have the opportunity to learn. So I think, especially being in in the passenger seat as well, you've got to stay alert. You've got to be looking in front of you, behind you, what the driver's doing, and you have got to be on it all the time. And it's tiring when you're instructing someone, like mentally, you're absolutely knackered at the end of the day. So yeah, I think that's, that's definitely a positive to kind of find some track time if you can, but I just think it's, you know, motorsport in general, it is obviously all about money and it's an expensive thing to do. And the whole reason why I'd never done single-seaters is because it's even more expensive than, like, mm. GTs and stuff. So, like, for example, to do a test day in a F3 car, you're looking at between, like, 7000 and maybe £12,000 for one day. Mm. I, I haven't got that money. Um, so you've just got to try and find you know sponsors to try and cover it or you do contra deals with some with the team to try and do it that way or you know anything and at the start of the year when I had the W series opportunity you know I am you know not ashamed to say there was a lot of sleepless nights because I'm like you know I haven't raced a full-time championship for a long time I haven't raced single seaters before and the technique to drive a single seater is completely different to most of the things that I've done and I'm like, how am I going to hit the ground running? I'm like, I need seat time. And I was asking so many people left, right and centre to try and, you know, get something together. And obviously with coronavirus now, that's put a complete stop to it. And it'll probably affect next year as well, because obviously yeah. businesses are going to be trying to get back on their feet from that. But it is, as you say, it's the most important thing is seat time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. What's uh, going back to some of the the coaching stuff? What's the most sort of stupid thing you've seen someone do whilst you've been coaching them? I mean, it's not it's not stupid, but it it makes me laugh and it also frustrates me so much at the same time. It's like they'll get in the car and obviously they're really really nervous and they're all a bit jittery and and I'll be like, right, okay, so we're just going to make sure you can all reach the pedals fine and you're comfortable with you know pushing them and blah 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 so they get in and I'm like okay right just um make sure you can get the clutch down and they're like press the accelerator and it's like I'm like whoa whoa, whoa." no 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 the the clutch on the left press the brake hard and I'm like no so it's it's just a normal car normal pedals at the bottom so you've got your accelerator your brake and your clutch and they're going yes I'm like okay right so just press the can you get the clutch to the floor and then again and I'm like right don't worry, I get you nervous, but just listen kind of to what I'm saying because they're just so panicked. The, the yeah, body's yeah. just like, I don't know. Um, so that happens quite often. Um, <laughs> or I, I totally I get that. I've had it getting in 
with an instructor in the car and I'm just like, for some reason you're like, and you're like, no, 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 I can drive. But like, not now. Right now I cannot drive. In the first like five laps, you are awful. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it's natural, which is why I just laugh about it. And, you know, but like, well, like people left foot braking as well. Like this one guy had, he was just adamant. He wanted to left foot brake. And I was like, do you left foot brake in your road car? And he was like, yes. I was like, right. So have you got, you've got an automatic then? No. And I'm like, <laughs> right. So you've got a manual with a clutch. Yes. And you left foot brake. Yes. All right. So when you get to a roundabout and you need to change down the gears as well as braking, what do you do then? So I just left foot brake. And I was like, but how do you change gear? So well, I've come <laughs> off the brake and then use the clutch to go down the gears. And I was like, I think you're wrong here. I, was like, I think you're probably a little bit confused. And he was like, no, I'm adamant. I was like, all right, well, Here's my Twitter address, right? When you drive home today, can you tweet me and tell me what you're doing with the pedals? And he tweeted me and he was like, yeah, you were right. So it was just, <laughs> it was just his brain that was just, you know, confused yeah, yeah. Um, at the time because he was so overwhelmed with stuff. But he was adamant. He was absolutely adamant. I was like, well, if you do that, I was like, that's dangerous, man. You need to not do that. <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. That is amazing. Every now and then I... I do a little bit of left foot braking on the road in a manual car yeah. and it, it always invariably I'll accidentally like slam on the brake a little bit rather than pressing the clutch or whatever. And like road cars, the brakes tend to be super sensitive as well because you've got the yeah. server, but I kind of the same, like if there's, you know, a roundabout you come into or a corner that, you know, you don't need to change gear or whatever. And you just want a little, you know, just to make sure your left foot's still alive and awake, then yeah, I do the same as well. That's how I've pretty much taught myself to left foot brake. I think that's the way to teach yourself to left foot brake. Just mm-hmm. do it often, not in a in a race car. Yeah, Some, that's how I learned how to heal and tour as well. In my red car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think the the day I started properly left foot braking, I, someone was explaining. I talked to a lot of people about it, and some people were like, just do it. Mm. Okay, fine. And I'd done it in my road car, but I hadn't done it in the race car mm. at that point in time. And then so I talked to someone about, and he, he talked about the seat. Mm. And I was like, oh, this is a different thing I've never thought about. It's like, in if you have a fitted seat yeah. in a race car, you don't move. If you don't have a fitted seat, for example, mm. you move. So you hit the brakes with your left and you slide tons mm. and you slide onto the brake pedal. Yeah. And you then press it harder. Mm. And then I was like, oh, that explains why I'm like, every time I try it, I'm massively just like yeah. over braking and then the race car you're locked in and you don't move and whatever and then it's just so much easier. Yeah, because in yeah, in your road car you've almost kind of got a it's with your foot, you're pivoting your foot. Whereas like if you try and have a braking anger, you put your full leg through it and as you say, you, you go with it. Whereas when you're in a race car, obviously you're strapped in anyway, even if you haven't got fitted seat, like yeah. you're still anchored in, so you can't really move. But that was one of my favorite things to do. And I started, I, I, I was driving on the road and like all my friends were like 17 and just passed the test. I was like, try a left foot braking. I was like, <laughs> brace myself. I'm like, go on, give it a go. And they're like, why are you bracing against it? I'm like, just try it. <laughs> like, they're like, how do you know that that would happen? I'm like, I don't know. Just knew. <laughs> yeah. It reminds me of the first time I, I bought an, I bought an Audi and it, I'd only driven like the kind of rubbish stuff before then. 
and it had really sensitive brakes mm-hmm. and I literally took it for a test drive for the leadership and then just pressed the brakes once and the guy's like sitting next to me is like yeah. <laughs> yeah. the windscreen like, oh sorry sorry I didn't uh, yeah but okay yeah it was like um, even people that aren't used to that heavy braking so I took my mum out on a passenger ride around Silverstone and like even coming out of the pits like I braked and she like her head's like in the footwell <laughs> just because they're not used to having to like brace themselves put themselves up yeah 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 not ready mm. cool well i normally wrap these up with five questions are you ready I'm some sure. of these might might be tricky i don't know we'll see okay first first question mm-hmm. five car garage mm. yeah. unlimited value uh, this is going to be <laughs> really rubbish all, all the car people they're going to be like oh my god what you can have if you wanted you could have four race cars and a daily driver if you, if that was something you would like, um, I'll do a mixture. So I would have a 911 GT2 RS. Mm. I would have not GT3. No GT2, a bit more special. I would have the Lamborghini Huracan Performante, just because I loved it from the thing. With with a um, cushion. With a cushion, I'd just get some custom seats. If I can afford to have that, I'd have some like comfy custom yeah, seats for sure. Um, <clears throat> what would I have? I'd have like an old. Sierra Cosworth race car. Oh. Just because they're crazy. Two left. I would probably have something like a Bugatti or something like that. Just something a little bit even more mental. Bit crazy. Chiron. Um, yeah. And they're pretty pricey as well. So like, yeah. I could sell it if I needed to. You could. And then the last one. Probably something like fun, like a Kater room or something like that. Mm. completely different to the rest of them in terms of like you know how it feels to drive yeah yeah i always come back to caterums it's like they're just Mm. they're just awesome fun in fact do you know i might swap out i might swap out something i might swap out the cozy for a la ferrari nice they're completely different five is not enough clearly five is not enough you could have a hundred yeah that's dangerous. <laughs> yeah, okay. Uh, that would take far too long as well. Yeah. Right. You can only drive one car for the rest of your life and you're allowed like a 500-pound banger on the side. Mm. So if you had to carry luggage or whatever, so it can be a sports car. Um, I would have a Bentley Continental, GT Continental. They're one nice. of the new ones because mm. it's the comfiest car I've ever driven and it's fast and it's luxurious and, yeah, just I'd have that. It takes a lot of boxes. Yeah. Yeah, awesome. Right. What do you think is undervalued in the car world at the moment? Or race car world? In general, like as in by people in general? Yeah, by you. As in an actual car or a A, part of a car? A car, a car. What is undervalued? Again, probably the Bentley. Because Mm. I think like a lot of people, obviously with a car like that, you know, they're either like, oh, you know, it's a Bentley. Why would I get that when I could actually maybe have a Rolls, which is a little bit more special or something like that. But actually to drive them, like they are, the older one, it feels like a bit of a big car to drive. It feels like a tank. But actually the new one, it it feels really agile. It doesn't feel as as big as what it actually looks like and what, what it actually is. And there's a lot of people that poo-poo it and then actually they get forced to drive it. So like I do um, 
I've done a little bit of work for Bentley and there'll be a Bentley owner that comes down and he brings his friend along because each friend just wants to do something. Mm. He's like, I'm not really, no, I don't really like Bentleys. You know, I'm not really into this. It just, (laughs) I think it looks too big. And then they drive it and they're like, oh, I might actually inquire about a Bentley now. So I think, yeah, the GT. Yeah, I spent a lot of time or a week in a V8 convertible Mm. at the beginning of this year um, in Sweden. And it was actually, I was very surprised considering how heavy that convertible is. It's basically like two and a half tons or something. When you push on Mm. and drive down like a good road, Mm. it it drives properly. Whereas like you said, the old one didn't really do that much. And especially I think the the W12 engine as well, like it is it's so fast like we drove guy smith and i drove the convertible and the hardtop at goodwood last year mm. and like they entered into the shootout and i was like all right okay <laughs> uh, so we're up against like mclarens and stuff like that but it got up there pretty swiftly and like it's just like a tank it just keeps on going yeah. The W12. yeah well have you driven a few things up the hill um i've driven that i've driven the lfa up the hill uh, oh nice yeah, that was pretty special. I couldn't push it 100% though, which was annoying. Because again, they, they put it in the supercar shooter and I was like, well, yeah. if you're not allowing me to push it 100%, I was like... Why can you not push it? Or they just... They were just looking after you. it. Yeah, there, was, there was something that needed kind of doing to it and they were like, we don't want to risk you know, it going wrong. So yeah. I had to look after it. I still got some smoke off the tyres. <laughs> but yeah. So I driven that and then the LC500 as well. Um, yeah, yeah. That... I think that was it. Yeah, it's pretty much it. Yeah. One of the, the things that I've experienced is I've, I've been up a few times in, in passenger seats and oh. stuff. It's how long it takes to do a run if you're a driver or a passenger. Oh, like you hours. mean, yeah, the, the full <laughs> experience. Yeah. So you get people like, you need to be in your car now. All right. Yeah, cool. So you're already half an hour before the time that it's due. And then you sit there for an hour before. And you can't get out of your car or go anywhere because they need you there just in case. Yeah. And then you do it and then you wait up at the top for probably an hour and then it takes another half an hour to get back down into your slot. So yeah, for for the spectator to go like that, yeah. it's like two hours for us. Yeah, and then you do it and you basically get back down and you've got to start and do it again. Yeah, pretty much. Ah, it's, it's cool though. Mm. Right, final question. What is the most interesting car to you at the moment? Could be a race car, could be a road car. Um, most interesting car, probably the new Ferrari that's hybrid. Oh, the SF90. Yeah. Um, it'd be interesting to see if it matches kind of all the hype that's surrounding it. I know it will, and it'll probably surpass all the expectations it has, but yeah, I think the SF90 for me. Yeah. I sort of forgot about that car. There's so many new cars at the moment. It's ridiculous. Yeah. That one. Yeah. I think it was... It's like 900 horsepower or 850 yeah. horsepower. Because like the Lamborghini, they've brought out one similar, haven't they? That's like 1,000 horsepower or something crazy. I don't know. It's called, yeah. Maybe. I, I think one of like five or something. Mm. Cool. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. That's all right. Now you know that I'm not a car person. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to do with like person. team cake, I'm, I'm you're sad. Just not, you're just not a nerdy car person. Yeah. Maybe I, maybe I should... Learn that more in, in lockdown. I've learned to juggle and I've learned to moonwalk. Nice, nice. Obviously, all very useful skills in life. Yeah, Rubik's cube—that's another one. Mm. If you're randomly bored one day, that's true. <laughs>
Let's get one up Amazon. Cool. Well, thanks very much. No worries. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.